0: Mark chapter 7, beginning now at verse 1. Let's read the first five verses where it says Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now, when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? You know, the bigger story is amazing, and and we're almost astounded by it when we think about it. That Jesus Christ came to this earth, lived a perfect life, taught the truth of God, lived the truth of God, and the religious leaders of his own time rejected him. As a matter of fact, they looked for every opportunity they could find to find fault with Jesus. And this is another example of the case. When Jesus receives this delegation of scribes and Pharisees that came from Jerusalem, don't miss what these people are about. This is an official delegation coming from Jerusalem to the region of Galilee to investigate the ministry of Jesus Christ. It's not the first time we've seen such a group from Jerusalem come to investigate his ministry. Back in the Gospel of Mark chapter 3, we also saw a same situation. And in that situation, they made such a harsh judgment of Jesus' ministry that they said of him that he's of the devil. Well, obviously, when this second delegation comes in Mark chapter 7, they've already made up their minds about Jesus. Yet they feel it's their responsibility to come and evaluate his ministry. Now the concept of these men evaluating the ministry of Jesus is fine. Matter of fact, we think it's responsible. In outward appearance, these men were protecting Israel from a potential false prophet or a false messiah. I mean, it's good and right for the religious leaders to come when a man comes and teaches and makes great claims about himself, makes great claims about his message. Well, somebody should come and investigate it, shouldn't they? They should see if the man's right on. They were right in the concept, but they were wrong in the way that they actually evaluated the ministry of Jesus. First, they've already made up their minds, haven't they? This is an evaluation. They're they're railroading Jesus. They've already made up their minds. Secondly, they did not evaluate Jesus against the measure of God's word. Instead, they're going to evaluate Jesus according to the measure of religious traditions and human opinions. And the whole issue at stake here is that they saw the disciples eating bread with unwashed hands, as it says in verse 2. And Jesus defends his disciples. By the way, listen carefully, especially any young people here this morning. Do not quote Mark chapter 7 to your parents as an excuse for why you come to the dinner table with dirty hands. When they say, you know, son, go wash your hands. Don't say, well, listen, uh, Jesus said in Mark chapter 7 that it doesn't really matter. Because what Jesus is speaking about here and the whole issue at stake in Mark 7 has nothing to do with physical cleanliness. It has to do with the specific ritual, a specific ceremony that the Jewish people at that time carried out. They had a ritual cleansing of the hands before every meal. You started with a specified amount of water, something like half a cup or so. And what you did is you had to take at least that much water, and you began by dripping the water down from your fingertips to your wrists, and you moistened your hands that way. Then you would take a fist of your right hand, put it in the palm of your left hand, and sort of scrub your palm clean. Then you would do the other with the other hand. Then you would take what was remaining of the water and let it trickle down from your wrists off your fingertips and let it drip to the ground. And while they did that, they even had a special prayer that they would pray. They would say, blessed be thou, O Lord, King of the universe, who sanctified us by the laws and commanded us to wash the hands. Then your hands were ceremonially clean, and you could eat. This was a purely ceremonial custom. It had nothing to do with properly cleaning your hands before eating. And so the religious Pharisees, the the scribes, these religious leaders of the day, they come and they noticed that Jesus' disciples did not go through this ceremony. They did not go through this ritual. And they said to Jesus, Jesus Why are your disciples neglecting this command? Now, if you notice here, they made it very plain that the disciples were not breaking a commandment of God, but a tradition of man. If you notice this in verse 5, they ask the question, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? And might I say that this was a very highly prized tradition. You see, in the Old Testament, you have the written law, the scriptures, and the Jewish people of Jesus' day honored the scriptures, but they also had something else that they called the oral law, and the oral law was the interpretation of the scriptures and the application of the scriptures, and they had it all written down in the Talmud and the Mishnah and all these extensive encyclopedias of Jewish tradition and law and many people in Jesus' day valued what man said about God's word even more than what God said himself. Friends, that's a dangerous place to be in. When a person, or excuse me, what a person says never has the same authority as God's word itself. Even If they sincerely say it's from God, it never has the same authority as God's word itself. Even if everybody accepts it, it doesn't have the same authority as God's word itself. And even if it makes perfect sense, it doesn't have the same authority as God's word itself. Even though I should say the scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus' day took this hand-cleaning ceremony very seriously. They said that bread eaten with unwashed hands was no better than excrement. A rabbi who once failed to perform this ritual was excommunicated from Judaism. And in addition, there is a very famous legend going around at that time about a rabbi who was imprisoned by the Romans, and every day he received his ration of water, but instead of drinking his ration of water, he used it to undergo the ceremonial cleansing, and he almost died of thirst, but he was regarded as a tremendous hero because he would not give up this tradition of cleansing the hands. So friends, I want you to think that as we read this and as we consider all this, it's very easy for us to think these religious leaders or this whole religious culture was very stupid and phony for their emphasis on traditions like this. I mean, don't you kind of think that way? You go, man, what a bunch of phonies. How dumb. I'm glad we don't have traditions like that. Why, who would ever go through something silly like that, a special ceremony to cleanse the hands every time you're going to eat? But friends, we don't realize how subtly these things emerge and how spiritual they seem to be, especially in the beginning. You know, many rituals or traditions seem to be built on an unshakable spiritual logic. Now, where this whole command started was back in the book of Exodus, chapter 30, Where God commands the priest, Aaron's and his sons, that in the course of performing their priestly duties, that they should wash their hands and their feet. It was a symbolic way of being clean before the Lord. And so he commanded the priest, when you come to me in service, have your hands and your feet washed in the ceremonial cleansing. Fine. But then they started with the spiritual logic. They said, well, didn't God command the priest to wash their hands before serving him? Shouldn't every faithful follower of God have the same devotion as a priest? Doesn't God want us to honor him in everything we do? Isn't every meal sacred to God? Shouldn't we take every opportunity to make ourselves pure before the Lord? Doesn't Psalm 24 say, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has Clean hands and a pure heart. So, even the scriptures itself prove yes, we should conduct this ritual of cleansing the hands. And you know, when I put it that way, maybe some of you are going, Yes, 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 we should do it. I mean, you can see the spiritual logic that can lead you to this sort of dogmatic ritual that says, well, you you have to have the ceremonial cleansing every time you're going to eat. Friends, let me explain something to you. You can't just look at the so-called spiritual logic and build for every point along the way. No, you have to look at where you end up. And if you end at a place where a word of man A tradition of man, a ritual of man has the same weight as the word of God, you're wrong. I don't care how you got there. I don't care the spiritual logic steps that brought you there. If at the end of the story you have a word of man, a ritual of man, a tradition of man having the same weight as the word of God, your spiritual logic doesn't matter, you're wrong. And Jesus is going to point this out to these men as he speaks to him now from verse six. And he answered and said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching this doctrines, the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandments of God, you hold to tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. He said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. Jesus isn't very subtle in his reply, is he? You hypocrites isn't exactly a friendly way to start out. Well, why was Jesus so stern in his reply? Because these leaders were far too concerned with trivial matters like ritual washing. When they focused on these trivial traditions, they excluded everyone who didn't keep the traditions, and so they discouraged them from coming to God. It's like you could draw a dividing line right down the middle of this room. Well, here's the people who observe the ceremonial hand washing, and here's the people that don't. Well, you people who observe it, you can come to God. You people who don't, stay away. Isn't that a horrible thing to say to people? You don't observe my tradition, so stay away. You don't observe it, so keep away. I like this quotation from the book of Isaiah and how the living Bible paraphrases it. It says, these people speak very prettily about the Lord, but they have no love for him at all. Their worship is a farce, for they claim God commands the people to obey their petty rules. That's a good sense of what Jesus is getting across in the passage. If you notice, it says in this quotation from the book of Isaiah, it's in verse 6, he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You see, this is the, the first problem that Jesus exposes with these religious leaders. And friends, it's a problem among the church today. It's when the church is too obsessed with image instead of reality, You know, it's possible to have the image of being religious or spiritual, but actually to be far from God. And this was exactly the case with these religious hypocrites. They projected the image of being very spiritual, but the reality wasn't there. As it says in verse 6, but their heart is far from me. Friends, would God say something similar to us this morning? Would He say, they attend church? but their heart is far from me. They read their Bible, but their heart is far from me. They they pray eloquently, but their heart is far from me. They contribute money, but their heart is far from me. They do ministry, but their heart is far from me. They, They love to sing, but their heart is far from me. They talk to others about Jesus, but their heart is far from me. Friends, doesn't this get down to the root of what it is in the Christian life? It's a matter of the heart you were all here this morning and you. you have your bodies here at church, before the Lord, and God is honored by that. God loves that. But friends, I hope your heart is here too. Maybe your heart isn't. Maybe your heart wishes it could be anywhere else but here right now. I want you to see that God notices that your body is here, but He also notices whether or not your heart is here. and it's the heart that really matters. It's the heart that God looks for. God wants to work in our lives from the inside out, to have it real in the heart, not just an image. But there was another thing that the religious leaders did. Not only were they obsessed with image instead of substance, but they, they were also... Uh, obsessed with the doctrines and the commandments of men. Look at what it says there at the end of verse 7. It says, they were teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Friends, this is another one of the pillars of legalism. You, You take a commandment or an opinion of man and you teach it and promote it as a doctrine of God. That's what supports legalism. It gives man's word the same weight as God's word. And that's always such a dangerous thing to do. If I were to stand before you here on a Sunday morning and say, well, in my opinion, you should never eat a hamburger from McDonald's again. Then you'd sit back and you'd say, that's his opinion. Now leave me alone. I'll do what I want to eat. If I want to eat a hamburger from McDonald's, I will. If I don't, I don't. But friends, if I come before you on a Sunday morning and say, God says you should no longer eat a hamburger from McDonald's then it's not a matter of you disagreeing with me, is it? Suddenly, I claim to speak with the authority of God, and then I'm acting as if you're opposing God if you don't do what I say. You you see the issue there? You're taking uh, the opinion or the perspective or the viewpoint of man, and you're making it as if it were a commandment of God. Friends, you realize that not everything in the Christian life is a matter of right and wrong. Some things, many things, are simply matters of personal conscience before God. The scriptures do not command ritual washings before meals. If you want to do it, knock yourself out. God bless you. It's not wrong to do it. It's wrong to think it makes you more holy before God. But if you want to go through the little ceremony, God bless you, do it. Do it unto the Lord. And do it without a sense of spiritual superiority over those who don't do it. If you go and wash your hands and think, I'm so spiritual and they're so unspiritual because I keep this. Forget it. Then you're off the wall. But if you just want to do it because you think you should do it, then God bless you. But then again, if you don't want to do it, that's fine also. Then don't do it unto the Lord. And do not look down upon those whose conscience compels them to do the ritual washing. That's between them and God. See, friends, we can't elevate what's our personal opinion to the status of God's commands. So the second thing that they did was they put man's commands forward, but the third thing was they rejected the commandment of God. Did you notice that there? Jesus saying in verses 8 and 9, he says, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. This is the third pillar of legalism. It would be bad enough to add the commandments of men to the word of God. That's bad enough. But almost without fail, the legalist or the religious hypocrite goes the next step. They reject the commandment of God and they put in its place the tradition or the commandment of men. In doing this, they subtract the real essence and the focus of God's word. Friends, nothing can substitute the power and the glory and the goodness of God's word. Now, Jesus is going to give them an example of this, beginning at verse 10. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is a gift to God, then you have no longer let him do anything for his father and his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. You see, in this, Jesus is giving another example. The religious hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees was not only shown in the ritual hand washings. Here was another practice where it exposes their hypocrisy. You see, the Old Testament very clearly says, honor your father and mother. And friends, that's a command that applies to us today. Now, when we are young, and when we live in our parents' household, we are also commanded to obey our father and mother. But when you're older, and you're no longer under your parents' direct authority, you're no longer commanded to obey them, but you're still commanded to honor them. And at the very least, that means making sure they're taken care of. But in the time of Jesus, they had a loophole around this. They said, "Ah, you know, here's the situation. This man, this Pharisee, for example, he has a great big bank account, and his parents are in great financial need. Now, what he does is he takes his great big bank account and he says, it is korban. It is dedicated unto God. It is unto you, O Lord. And then when his parents need some money, he says, oh, mom and dad, I'd really love to help you. And I know I have all this money, but I can't give any of it to you because it's dedicated to God. Aha, it's a shady way around the command to honor your father and mother, especially Because that money wasn't really given to God, because at a later date, he could uncorbon it (laughs) and make it his again. All it was was a way of sheltering that money so that he didn't have to help his parents with it. And Jesus looks at it and goes, this is hypocrisy. The command is plain in front of you, honor your father and mother, and you think that you're excused because you found a spiritual way around it. And isn't that the real kicker on all this? Because when the man says, well, that money is korban, it's dedicated unto God, he sounds so spiritual. Where actually, that's more of just the image. The substance is actually disobedient to God because the son could completely disobey the command to honor your father and mother and do it while being ultra-religious. Jesus called this making the word of God of no effect through your tradition. So now Jesus continues and he speaks to the multitude in verse 14. And when he had called all the multitude to him, he said to them, hear me, everyone, and understand there is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him. Those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Friends, this was an absolutely revolutionary statement that Jesus made. And the apostles would follow up on it later on in the time of of the book of Acts. And they would establish what seemed like a radical principle that kosher dietary laws no longer applied in the kingdom of God. That it's not what goes into a man that makes him defiled. It's what comes out of him. And Jesus said this, and it's an absolutely revolutionary statement. I'll say it again. Jesus said that there's nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. This would have shocked his listeners because they thought that you were made right before God by keeping kosher dietary laws. And if you ate something that was not kosher, you made yourself unclean. Jesus says, you know what, it's really not about food. It's about what comes out of you. Now, I need to pause for a moment here and explain something because it's possible for somebody to take this verse in a very wrong way. I say, well, Jesus said that there's nothing that that comes into me that can defile me. So I guess it doesn't matter if I take a look at that pornography. I guess it doesn't matter if I watch that movie or listen to that ungodly entertainment. After all, if it comes in me, it can't defile me. No, no, no. Friends, please understand. In the context, Jesus is clearly speaking about things that enter your body in the sense of food. He's not talking about things that enter your mind. That can defile you. He's not talking about things that enter your, he is talking, I should say, about things that enter your body. And here's the fundamental principle. It's very clear. Washing with unclean hands or any other such thing that you put into you is not defiling. Rather, what comes out of us is defiling. And it reveals that we have unclean or defiled hearts. Friends, I know that many of you have your own convictions about what you can eat or what you shouldn't eat. There are some people who say, well, you know, I, I believe that I shouldn't eat red meat, so I'm not going to eat red meat. There are other people who say, well, I believe that I shouldn't eat dairy products, and so I won't eat any dairy products. And other people say, well, I believe I shouldn't eat meat at all, and so I'll just keep a vegetarian diet. Let me say this to everybody. God bless you. It's wonderful. Go for it. It's great. If it's on your heart to eat this or not eat that, that's wonderful. But don't think it makes you any more spiritual before God. Don't think it makes you any more accepted before him. It's just a matter of personal conscience. And so the person who's a vegetarian and thinks that it's best for them and for their health and for their life to be a vegetarian, God bless them. And for the person who goes to (laughs) In-N-Out and orders not just the double-double, but the (laughs) triple-triple and grosses out everybody around them, God bless them too. What can you say? Because it's not what goes into a man that defiles him or makes him unclean. It's what comes out. And what kind of things come out of us that defile us? Jesus will tell us beginning at verse 17. It says, when he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. Don't you love that? Oh, all the time. There's the disciples with the crowd of people when Jesus is teaching and Jesus is teaching and they're all going, yeah, amen, Jesus. Hallelujah, yeah, preach it. And then as soon as they're alone with him, say, now, what did you mean by that? Can you explain that to us, please? It's just like us. So he said to them, are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from the outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. And he said, what comes out of a man that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Friends, let me lay it down in two main points from what jesus says here first of all jesus really wakes us up and he lets us know where the real problem is oh we don't want to admit it we want to say you know the reason why i sinned is because the devil tempted me so bad that devil man is he a stinker boy did he sure tempt me or it's the world system How can a person walk, God, well, no wonder I sinned. Look at all the billboards and look at the magazine covers and look at all that. You know, you can't escape it. It's just terrible. The assault of this world, that's why I sinned. Or we want to blame that other person. Well, no wonder I sinned. I mean, did you see what they did to me? Good heavens, it's all of this and we want to blame them. Friends, you know where sin comes from, don't you? Jesus said, All these evil things come from within. Now, please, I understand the devil's not out there to make it easy on us. And he wants to take a look at whatever foothold of sin is within you and draw it out of you. But friends, he didn't put it in you. The world is no friend to us in our walk with God, is it? It's always looking to seduce us and entice us and lead us astray. But friends, it didn't put it into you. It just looks to draw it out of you. And those people who are a problem in your life, you're blaming them for your sin. Friends, no, it's not them. They didn't put it into you. They may draw it out of you, but it comes from within you. And we want to duck that, don't we? We want to say, well, it's the devil. The devil made me do it. We we'll say it's the sinful world or it's that other person. No, my friends. The sin problem resides in us. That's why changing our environment or having a deliverance service or doing this or doing that, it won't change the sin problem within us. No, friends, wherever you go, you take yourself with you and sin comes from within. Friends, this is a, a wake-up call from Jesus to us. He says, look in the mirror if you want to deal with the sin problem in your life. The second thing that it shows us is what God is really concerned about. And friends, do you see what God is really concerned about? The heart. Verse 21, For from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, and so forth. From the heart. Sometimes we think that Christianity just deals with our external actions, with what we do, the things on the outside. Friends, first and foremost, God wants to deal with your heart. Now, please, I'm not trying to say that the external actions don't matter. There's a flip side to this, and some people say, well, it doesn't matter what I do, my heart is right before God. No, that's not correct either. Friends, it's, it's one thing to do the outwardly right things, and it's another thing to have your heart in the right place. You know what God really wants from you? A heart-to-heart relationship with Jesus Christ, your Savior. Heart-to-heart. Where in the inner person, you really know what it is to have fellowship, to have a friendship with Jesus, where he is your heartfelt friend. Not someone you visit once a week on Sunday mornings. Friends, do you see the difference in how this can revolutionize your Christian life? Sometimes people come to me and they're they're very discouraged and they say, you know, the Christian life is just too hard. I don't know if I can live it. Or or they say, you know, I'm trying this Christian thing and it just doesn't work. I know what the problem is. Maybe they've been doing it on the outside, but in the heart, the reality isn't there. You cannot have a heart-to-heart meeting with Jesus Christ and come away unaffected. There's no way it can happen. You meet him on that kind of level, and he'll bless you and touch you and transform you. So friends, you see sometimes how we can dwell too much on the outside things and not get down to the heart of the matter, which is really the matter of the heart. Friends, don't you want God to do a work in your heart today? Maybe some of you, you've been uh, doing the outward things, You come to church, you you read your Bible, you pray, you're you're a good person. And I compliment you for that. That's a wonderful thing. We need more good people and less bad people in this world. But if your heart isn't given over to Jesus Christ, then you really don't know what salvation is all about. You need to give your heart to Jesus today. And maybe there's some others of you this morning, and your difficulty is at one time your heart was really given to the Lord. But right now, it's not. Now, it's all just kind of mechanical. It's all kind of formal. You know, the the prayers, the the time in the Word, all that, it doesn't have the same heart in it as it once had. But God wants to do that work in your heart this morning. Wouldn't it be wonderful if if every one of us, every one of us this morning, knew what it was like to have that heart-to-heart, beautiful, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ? That'd be a revolution upon this world. And so you can't really do anything about the person next to you, can you? But you can do something about the person who's sitting in your seat. God says, come, give me your heart this morning. Let's pray and do that together. Father...